0: Back to the popular show with me, James A. Smith. Uh, I'm really excited about this episode. We're talking about uh, an artist that I'm extremely interested in at the moment uh, and had the pleasure of going to see, John Cale. And joining me to discuss this is Chal Ravens. Chal is uh, a music journalist for The Guardian, musician herself, uh, sound engineer, uh, and general cool person. So, who better to discuss? Contemporary recording artist John Cale. Chow, Thanks so much for coming on the popular show. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, so we've both seen John this week. We've both been yes. in the in the presence of this kind of. I don't know. He's almost like the secret figure of rock music. He's uh, people know what the Velvet Underground is, and and people who like music know who John Cale is. But uh, it's not like any of the big songs are played on the radio or even other sort of automatic kind of reach for mentions or automatic cover versions that people do. So mm. he, he sort of been there all the way through music since the, the sixties. And here he is one of the last guys standing of that generation. And, um, well, we're going to talk about what it is he's trying to do now at the age of, uh, 81, I think it is. Um, but maybe you could start us off by telling us something about your own kind of experience with the the Velvet Underground or, or with John Cale and, and what led you to seeing him uh this week.
1: Yes. Well, in many ways, um I'm just a fan of the Velvet Underground because I think um they are from all kinds of different directions. The the band, the most important band, I think that what they achieved in a very short space of time has ended up being effectively a a blueprint for kind of of the vast majority of experimental or arty rock music for the next 40 odd years so fine but on a more um, personal note I was in a Velvet Underground tribute band covers band if you like uh when i was 19 or 20 21 ish and um well obviously you don't usually get tribute bands for the velvets um well you do but they're called things like roxy music or uh (laughs) galaxy 500 (laughs) or whatever and i the idea was um not that it was my idea uh full credit ultimately goes to our our own lou reed uh bob doc doc rock um the idea is really that why bother writing your own songs when The Velvet Underground had written better ones? So that was kind of what steered us into doing it. Um, and also a kind of perverse idea of what it would be like to play these songs um, that obviously haven't been heard live uh, for a long, long time, were barely heard live at the time by by anyone really, and have only lived on live through the versions of Reed, Kale, other people who've covered them, but always different, you know. When when Kale and Reed went back to their older material, it usually did change a bit, um, more more or less. Um, so yeah, we were quite obsessed with them, and I actually spent a a decent chunk of that time of my life when. I was obviously into lots of other new music, um, really exclusively listening to very old music and particularly The Velvets, but then also um, television, Modern Lovers, Sonic Youth, um, The Sonics, um, all these kinds of, yeah, underground art rock bands, or or not really underground, I guess, but from that type of lineage, basically. Um, And then Kale, well, as part of this fandom, I again. I spent a lot of that era going to see uh, artists of that ilk who were in their fifties, sixties, seventies. We went to see a lot of those people. We went to see Kale. We went to see Reed. Um, we we saw Leonard Cohen. We saw Patty Smith countless times. All of these kinds of people. Um, so I'd seen Kale a few times back then, um, and yeah, I. It, it just sort of was it formed the backdrop to my 20s in a, a, a strange way um yeah. with
0: the band were were you um did you have kind of uh individual people playing the roles or was it a, a little bit more spontaneous than that
1: well, obviously, it would have been far too cringe and not in the spirit to do a straight up tribute in which what person A equals Nico or whatever. So I did sing I, the Nico I'm struggling songs.
0: to uh, I'm struggling to imagine a sort of bootleg Beatles for the <laughs> yeah, no. undergrounds with skits and. Uh, jokes, there was a point.
1: Being... Yeah, no, there was a point when I had a white suit, but I kind of deemed it too much after wearing it mm-hmm. once, and it just sort of been that. But I did do the Nico songs, but I also played guitar in a few uh just a few of the other songs where we needed to fill in we had uh, like the pianist mainly just play piano we had a separate viola player a bassist who just played bass um yeah i guess we we switched it around a a little bit we didn't have a a, yeah it wasn't like a one-to-one equivalent because that would probably just be embarrassing i think it may have been embarrassing, anyway, but we thought it was okay. <laughs> uh,
0: well, I, I love that you sort of inhabited that that work at that time of your your life, and then you've ended up actually interviewing John Cale. You, your uh, your interview um, appeared in the Guardian with the the headline uh, "Humanity Hits a Brick Wall." Uh, I would love to hear how that came about. Uh, what what it what it's like, kind of when you get a gig like that, the lead up to speaking to the artist and and what John Cale was like to speak to, assuming you hadn't spoken to him when you saw him uh, in the past?
1: Um, I may have exchanged words with him at a signing once. It didn't Mm. go especially well. So uh, I didn't really feel very positive about it going into it i obviously wanted to do it but those types of interview there are a few people who you know they worry me um as an Mm -hmm. interviewer because they are important and part of you ultimately um against journalistic instinct does want to be approved of and liked by your heroes which is Obviously, a waste of time, but you kind of want to come across well, and you want to make sure that they know that you know all about them, and that's <laughs> not really worth trying to do. So it was it was fine in that sense, but I definitely didn't feel um, I, I wasn't I wasn't looking forward to it. I was definitely nervous, and that doesn't usually happen. I, I really don't feel nervous with anyone, to be honest. The only other person um, where I felt similarly nervous and ended up being a bit waffly, um, more waffly than usual, was Laurie Anderson um, for kind of related (laughs) reasons, basically. Um, But it was fine. He was on the phone, number one. So that's never the ideal interview scenario. But he lives in LA. He was very... I mean, he he seemed very attentive and gracious. It wasn't a video call. It was only a phone call. I did feel that he was... You know, he. If you read old interviews with John, he does seem to be um, offering some fairly elliptical and opaque ideas, um, and often going off on on exciting and quotable tangents. Presumably, some other less quotable ones that didn't end up in in print before. But I felt now he was. somewhat uh yes more more elliptical than ever there were (laughs) he he was quite slow to answer a lot of questions and you could tell that he was a bit um just uh just finding it a little bit difficult to kind of communicate as as rapidly as he probably would have done before so basically he's he's just seemed a little bit more of an, an elderly gentleman frankly um but not not at all lacking in in ideas just not uh extremely talkative um which meant that ultimately I didn't tell him about my tribute band um which I had sort of been planning to do and I thought (laughs) I'd just see how it goes and then it just didn't seem appropriate at all um so we left that one but he he was perfectly polite but it was a little bit hard to get juice out of it as I would usually say
0: yeah, I can see that, and I, I, th- I think that that is kind of intriguing for thinking about a guy who, as I, I said at the start, is in this this increasingly slender minority of of people of that incredibly creative post war generation um, that established so much of what we think of as popular music, and that you can almost count on one hand the ones who are still pushing themselves as artists um for for listeners who who may as i say are in that that vast bracket of people who've heard of john Cale but might struggle to name a song outside the the velvet underground material uh having um kind of you know united the avant-garde and and rock and roll uh under the guidance of andy warhol uh, with lou reed in in the velvet underground kale was kicked out after two albums um having i don't know maybe made the most john kale um impression on white light white heat where a lot of it is sort of recognizable rock and roll song structures but with the gain turned up on everything and everything bleeding into everything else and all this kind of spoken word stuff going on and experimental viola playing uh, layered over. Uh, and then after that, I mean, I've been revisiting the the, the solo work. Um, shout out to the Joker Men podcast who have been holding a lot of people's hands through it and, and kind of listening to it all in order recently. And it's, quite, it's kind of amazing that he then made a couple of albums of perfectly formed uh, orchestral pop songs. Um, and you sort of think, well, where, where did that come from, uh, given his, his previous work, where he, he wasn't principally a songwriter at all? Then pioneered what we think of as fucked up guitar music in the late 70s, then pioneered electronic music um, at, at the same time as producing the, the kind of first albums for Patti Smith, Stooges, Happy Mondays, all of these very, actually, in themselves, very diverse acts uh, and has kind of continued in that spirit I, I often think of him as somebody who never really got his due and therefore has never ceased to think of himself as a guy kind of waiting for his break and every album seems to be like okay this is a, a new sound i've got now and uh, i'm going to see if uh, this is going to be the one to break through and he's still kind of doing that in his mm-hmm. in his 80s so I, I i think that i don't know he's a he's a he's a puzzling artist and uh I, I wonder, I don't know, when, when the new you heard the new album was out and, and you were getting the gig of of interviewing him, what do you, what did you expect the music to be like? Did you expect to like the music or or I don't know, did did mm. you have sort of any anticipation there?
1: Not really. Um I thought that the previous album, which is now ten years ago, Shifty Adventures in Nookie Wood, was, you know, it's a really Uh, technically interesting record he's really exploring a lot of the sort of production techniques that he's quite interested in it's quite bass heavy you know it's an electronic record in many ways and I think that that sometimes works for him and sometimes doesn't for various reasons and I I wondered if it would be more in that vein of this strangely kind of hip-hop inspired production and his you know the kind of songs he write which Are always um, you know have quite bizarre lyrics in them often about strange characters or places or uh, you know these strange specificities that he likes to include anything like that and I was actually quite surprised at what it sounded like because other than the fact that there are lots of interesting collaborators who are all very um, well trendy for want of a better word uh, lots of young interesting artists or youngish interesting artists um people like laurel halo and actress who are you know experimental electronic musicians as well as someone like wiseblood who makes really good sense as a john cale collaborator um they've played live together before i think and they are you know songwriters um but aside from that i i feel like he at a very late stage has landed on a kind of Electronic sound that really feels very John Cale in the way mm. that maybe sometimes before it, it, it hasn't. When it, in in the more kind of industrial sounding records where he's using electronic uh, techniques of various kinds, then yes, it works. But now it's like he's found this this more again sort of post hip hop uh, like heavy bass, very syrupy. Um, I, th- I think I used the word zonked in my article. It just mm-hmm. has this heaviness that really suits Kale. Um, it suits the kind of the 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 memory of his explorations with the drone, the fact that he's a bassist. Um it's it's a kind of introspective, heavy, dreamy, propping up the bar kind of album. And I instantly really liked it and I was m- a bit surprised, honestly.
0: <laughs> I really like that observation that the the bass heavy uh, quality of of uh, of his current production fits with him as a bassist. I, I think it fits with his voice as well. I, I think apart from all the things that we could list that he's underrated as, I think he's an underrated vocalist. I think that really came out in the live show that we we both saw. Um, the strength of his voice i guess it's the welsh thing um but uh yeah that that kind of that that powerful baritone voice really sounds terrific when
1: still sounds swamped,
0: great and and sounds great on the record as well yeah. when swamped uh, in that in that kind of production that you were describing so um mm. yeah i i i really like the idea that um something that doesn't sound like on paper it would work and actually uh, you can almost imagine you know, think of David Bowie's uh, drum and bass uh, experiments of the nineteen nineties. It's it's something that this kind of generation of artists has sometimes struggled with in the past. But it seems yes. like Kale is actually getting it right. And if if only more of them had survived, maybe some others would as as well. Although of course Bowie's last album is a, is another good example of of a very contemporary sounding record uh, mm. that doesn't sound sort of like you know, granddad's come down to the club. (laughs)
1: yeah i actually used to have a a spotify playlist uh which should have got further actually i should go back to it which uh my good friend april claire welsh another music journalist started started uh, up with her which we just called acid dads which is basically for (laughs) all of these records where the sort of 60s era uh went electronic in various ways so there's like the neil young electronic album there's obviously like temporary secretary and all these sorts of things but there's loads out there because they all gave it a go at some point and sometimes the results are fantastic but
0: yeah they all gave it a go, go. <laughs> yeah. uh, and 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 Dylan said to... <laughs> well i mean cohen that i mean i've the way i've always thought about that is that you've got this kind of echoing booming voice of authenticity stuck in an artificial fake world and and that that actually has a kind of dynamic of its own whereas dylan was quite right to strip all of that production off of his 80s records on this uh, <laughs> on the uh, a couple of bootleg series ago um but but yeah I, well I, I i wanted to ask more about the contemporary artist that he's working with here uh i mean i i'm already totally out of touch and don't know (laughs) don't know who most of them are and, and can't and can't sort of um judge whether like this is them sort of answering the call because they have to because no one can say no to john cale or whether it actually makes sense with them it makes sense to me um listening to it but i as a you know i guess i'm calling on you as a contemporary music writer now as opposed to someone who likes old um, shits could you say something about the the collaborations that he's doing here
1: yes so i believe most of them Have sprung up naturally through live collaborations. So, for example, he's played with Wise Blood. Sorry, it's Wise Wise Blood. I always want to say Wise Wise Blood and Animal Collective and I think Sylvan Esso. um, You know, they're live performers and they've played together for things like the Velvet Underground fiftieth anniversary shows, which I think happened in Brooklyn and elsewhere. So, he's been on stage with some of them. So, Mm -hmm. fine. but with Laurel Halo and with Actress, which I think are, well, for me, they're particularly interesting because that's more like the kind of music that I listen to and write about normally. Um, yeah, that's intriguing. I would say, I mean, knowing what I do about both of those artists, I think they would certainly take the call because it's Kale and they would, you know, love and respect his work, I imagine. Um, and I think with Actress, there there's something interesting as well about the fact that Actress is... Uh, a kind of techno dance artist who has increasingly been making um, sort of experimental slash avant-garde influenced works, working with uh, the London Contemporary Orchestra and uh, was there some another orchestra? Yeah, the LCO, and he is inspired. Uh, I'm, by among other people uh Yanis Zanakis who is also was once uh one of Kale's tutors in a roundabout way at Tanglewood in uh New York State uh that university is so that was the university that he went to when he went to America for the first time. So there are these odd connections if you yeah. actually the deeper you look into it, because Kale is this, you know, multi-pronged connecting node to everything, actually there's loads of reasons why they make sense together. Um, from a kind of deeper, deeper level.
0: Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Uh, it, it's almost like, um, well, have, having a sort of foot in a kind of academic training. A, a, a lot of that experimental music maybe kind of works on a longer cycle than pop music does. I mean, it's not, it's not like having... Harry Styles as a guest vocalist in, in that situation that there's maybe, <laughs> maybe a, a bit a slightly more kind of slow handing over of the the baton that goes uh, on there um, and I mean the the other approach I was trying to take in in sort of looking up um, uh, some of these people and, and and thinking about what what Kale gets them to do with him was to sort of see see it in the same light as him him working with the Stooges and working with Patty Smith. I mean, obviously he was only slightly older than those people, but um, you know, that was him sort of saying, okay, what's the next thing that's come along? And and how can I um bring something out in, in their sound? Um maybe we can talk about the, the concert itself, uh, which I, I found absolutely delightful. I, I hadn't despite liking him i'd never and having had the chance to see him in the past i'd never actually seen him in the past um so that this this was this was quite exciting um and well uh what i like to say about bob dylan live is that nobody asks as much uh, of an audience but also nobody gives as much to an audience um and I don't. Well, Kale does the first thing. I don't, does he do the second thing? I don't know. This this was kind of a challenging um, concert. It did ask mm. for some preparation if if you're going to like it. But it, it had some. It, I, I liked it in general, and it also had some very very special bits in it for me. But uh, how did you get on with the the London Palladium performance?
1: I've seen John play a few times um, and certainly when he was playing, I guess, t- 10, 15 years ago now, he, they were much more uh, physical performances, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know, he was bashing the piano in a short sleeve shirt in a slightly more active way, whereas this was much more stately and, you know, he did seem older um, in in certain ways, at least. It was very... It was very true to his uh, long, long, long history of doing different versions of his own songs, which, of course, is what Dylan <laughs> does. Um, I think that there were some real highlights, but if you compare to some other recent set lists, I, so I got the impression that he had probably worked out a set list that he was going to take to all of these current uh, gigs, this current run of gigs. But actually looking at the setlist from other days in the past like, week or so, they are quite different to each other, um, which surprises me a bit, but also makes me feel that there's much more of a um, asking something of the audience thing going on because there were some extremely, you know, if you're into experimental music of various kinds, none of it was asking all that much from you, but there were some extremely long explorative versions of things for instance a particularly sort of dirgy pretty amazing like deconstructed version of half past france which i think was my highlight because it Mm. just showed exactly you know that is the kale ethos to some extent it's a bit like the the sort of dylan ethos as well of well i've got all of this material but i'm just absolutely not going to perform it the way that you remember it the way that you've heard it a million times because that's obviously not what i'm about as an artist so i've got this you know deconstructed ambient drone type version but then also i'm gonna play guts and it's gonna be actually pretty faithful just mm-hmm. to remind you that i've got the choice at all times and it's not like a you know there's some kind of um randomized um fuckery going on basically <laughs> you know he, he doesn't want you to know what's going to happen i think that that is just that's just what he's been doing on stage since the 70s really or or earlier in terms of messing with the audience a little bit so
0: yeah so we we got we got six tracks um I think that's right from the new record and they're, they're quite long so that that was a su- substantial kind of amount of uh of mm. audience time mm. there were maybe a couple of tracks from you know not inevitably not that well-known records of the 2000s um there were uh th- three songs from those sort of heroic albums of the 70s uh which the John Cale fans know and love but are probably the things in his canon that are just not well-known enough and, and should be much mm-hmm. better known. Uh, and then there were there was a Pretty People, as I understand it, that's a B-side from the current album. And then there, yeah. there there's a couple of songs from older albums that aren't even on Spotify and aren't in print, uh, Villa yes. Albany. That's from... Um, that's from Caribbean, Caribbean Sunset. Caribbean Sunset, yeah. Uh, yes. That's that's one from the eighties that you can't get hold of anymore. And Rose Garden Funeral Sores, which if I'm right, is from the like experimental album that was recorded live, Sabotage, that again you can't you can't get for love nor money
1: yes Um, maybe you've got it but i don't know so
0: so i i kind of i I liked this that this is this was sort of deep cuts from the whole career but stuff that is so difficult to get (laughs) hold of um but for all that yeah the faithful guts i mean it was more than faithful what that what that guts reminded me of was lou reed's rock and roll animal where it's like the kind of Cock rock, um, <laughs> um, uh, uh, metal guitar version of it, and then, yes. I, I mean the, the really special thing was him coming back on stage to do his uh, his Heartbreak Hotel cover, which is in the past has been one where he sort of howls like a werewolf over it. Uh, but this was, this was well, your word was stately, and I, I think that described qu- quite a lot of um, his. Whole sort of deportment here, whereas if you see Dylan, I, I keep going back to him because we we, we covered his um, some of his shows uh, um, last year. Uh, he, he's he's there, he's there, and he's doing very interesting, weird piano stuff on stage. But he, he there's not this kind of sense of him being the controlling figure on the stage in the same way. What, what John Cale made me feel like was, I was seeing a, a very um, sort of senior art artist organizing an installation and he was stood there in at the heart of it he had these kind of wacky rock and roll cock rock dudes um as um very um wide-ranging players as they were they were guys with long hair and tight jeans strutting about uh, having a good time behind him he was just there as this figure of kind of austere seriousness the, the 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 weirdest moment for me was maybe three songs in actually when he had the he had the sort of tufty white hair he had glasses on and suddenly this pink light shone on him and for a second i thought oh he looks like andy wall the the, 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 <laughs> the he's he's somehow sort of resembling the master at the center of the stage here this is more mm. like a kind of a, a, an installation piece as opposed to uh, a, an old rock star wheeling himself out to play some songs.
1: <laughs> yeah, and there were some, I don't know about some of the choices of the uh, images that were that were being screened behind because most of them were quite abstract, but then there were a couple that were so, you know, obviously Moonstruck is this song on the new album that is Moonstruck brackets, uh Nico's song that's what it is isn't it it's yeah. about Nico fine it's very clearly about Nico images of Nico flash up and that to me sometimes feels oh it's 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 making it too obvious somehow isn't it and then there's this other clip from uh the song "Night Crawling," which is written about his memory of basically hanging out with David Bowie in New York in the 70s um which is a fantastic topic for a song and the and there's a video for it um which has sort of cartoon versions of both of them, just uh, living up in New York, At you know, sort of going around um, in sort of pimped out cars and whatever. And it's, it's fun, but it's quite, it feels a bit, both a bit, I don't know, I don't want to say cheesy, but it's so historical and so retrospective yeah. in a way that he just doesn't normally do. Even when he's doing a set that's about the Velvet Underground, he makes a point of bringing in new musicians or doing a different version. So I thought those bits were odd because it, it the thing of going down memory lane is just isn't what he normally does. So it seemed unusual in the setting, you know, not, 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 yeah. not what he's known for.
0: You, you're absolutely right. I, I mean, his, his long tradition of... Um, saying uh, at a certain point in the sets you might have heard of a band called the velvet underground and this is what they sounded like only wow, to play we didn't
1: get that. we didn't, no, we, get didn't. That.
0: we certainly didn't get that so nothing. i wasn't even hoping for it but usually that was him introducing a kind of um deconstructed passive-aggressive yeah. cover of wait yes <laughs> yeah yes. <laughs> absolutely nothing like what the velvet underground sounded like so no. to have um that history of kicking against that um that reputation and that standing of the band and, and i mean in his uh, in his autobiography he's he he basically recounts the story of the above underground as a story of a kind of disappointment as something that wasn't really mm. realized and didn't really mm. um happen that the, mm. the potential was not reached um and then yeah the the whole the whole set list is completely committed to the idea that he, he, he he's the artist now. It's not this isn't a nostalgic thing. So I, I'd agree that particularly the projected images of of Nico and the Velvets was um, was a bit corny actually, and, and 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 was not really in this in the spirit of the the gig at all. It just wasn't it wasn't needed. I, 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 I didn't I wasn't yearning for the sixties when I was listening to it. I was trying to make sort of head or tail of what I was hearing now
1: yeah. and I think particularly because it it and it adds to this idea that Nico was the the chanteuse in the white suit. But of course, for John, she was this totally different, totally, a unique, bizarre artist making sort of medieval sounding proto drone, like inc- yeah. just incredible, dark, weird, gothy music. He produced several of those albums. And I mean, maybe that's not the Nico that he was thinking of when he wrote that song, but he, he talks a lot about that Nico, the ear of Nico, the unbelievable kind of fortitude and creativity that she had when she didn't really have any means to make music really so we had yeah. this harmonium that she taught herself and 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 not all that much else and actually in the interview it was funny once I'd looked back at the transcript I realized that we spent virtually no time talking about the Velvet Underground and we kept coming back to Nico and we also kept coming back to Lamont Young and it's interesting that for for John Cale I'm sure that the Velvet Underground are just one of many things that have happened to him that shape what he's thinking about musically all the time. So yeah, that to to jettison all of the VU songs for a setlist seems completely, you know, possible. He usually does play some, but fine. But then odd to sort of uh reinvoke this particular era of Nico in a way that seems to you know designed to appeal to the people in the audience with banana t-shirts on or something.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. Um, did you go into the, I mean, I, I'm curious about the extent to which, as you'd played Nico and inhabited her her voice and and, and, uh, and sung the songs, I, I wondered, I mean, how important is she to you? And, and was that sort of in your, your back pocket when you were going into the conversation with him?
1: I wouldn't have brought it up in any Mm -hmm. particular way, I think, and she is very important to me, yeah, Um, and, I, I think what's quite difficult, is that, Kale, carries, a certain, access point to Nico, that nobody else, living has, Um, he knows her, in a way that, basically nobody else living, does, although, is her son still with us i can't quite remember she has a son or she had a son um and but you know he he knew her as an artist and understood her as an artist in a way that nobody else was understanding at all really you know people didn't didn't get what she's about it's quite weird music it's really strange ex- sort of exotic yet european music and um i think for me that that almost makes me hesitant to to go there to probe because it feels very personal. And obviously it was all quite, I, I'm sure that it, it, it feels personal to him in some way. I also got the impression, you know, for, he did talk about her um, quite extensively. I also got the impression that he, he felt that he had this amazing working relationship with her, but that ultimately her, her personality wasn't one that was easy to penetrate and that he didn't necessarily have that much more of a grasp on, what was motivating her than, than anyone else. Um, that might be, that might just be a, a, a misread, but I definitely, I think he, he, yeah, he's in this odd position of being the um, guardian of her legacy in, in a certain way. And I think that's one reason why he talks about her often and, and, you know, would write a, a song about her even now because although she has certainly got her due in, in certain respects, you know, you do hear, at least songs from the album she didn't like on the radio quite often. You hear songs from Chelsea Girl on Six Music occasionally, for instance, um, which she thought were um a bit a bit naff. <laughs> mm. Um I think that he sees her musical legacy as probably a bit underrated and always worth giving a boost which i i definitely agree with i mean it's 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 just strange music it, it's it's really influential in certain ways i mean if you're into kind of 80s goth then then nico connects to all of that but she wasn't part of those scenes she was well she was you know she was on drugs she was <laughs> kind of had a had her hands full with life for all of that time so yeah but no she definitely she means a lot to me a very um complex sort of enigmatic figure i think
0: it's a very strange position that that John kale finds himself in I, I mean there are not many bands that had um a Nico and a Lou Reed and a john kale in and and he's the one standing um so yeah he, he is the um he's the one sort of carrying her legacy and in a curious way um he's also carrying Lou Reed's so I, I I can't help but read the uh night crawling track that you referred to the one with the the um, kind of kind of cool, but maybe kind of corny as well. Seventies style cartoon of um, John Cale and David Bowie on a night out, uh, and he had that projected behind him when he played the the song. Mm. Um, incidentally, I, I really felt that was a song that from the record that came alive. In performance, um, and and uh, and, yeah. and was re- was really cool sounding. But um, anyway, what I was going to say was, I uh, all the way through John Cale and Lou Reed's dealings with e- each other, there's this amazing irreconciliation and an, an amazing kind of ongoing bitchiness and rage at each other uh, and <laughs> and meanness to each other, uh, and to find at the age of eighty one that kale uh, well you know it's the anniversary of transformer lou reed and david bowie's magnificent collaboration that john kale would release a song not <laughs> giving any nod at all to lou reed but say yeah i was friends with david bowie as well incidentally uh, <laughs> th- th- I, I, there's almost, a, i mean this there was no lou reed in, in, in any way in this set list although there was nico and there was bowie so i can't help but interpret a sort of pettiness there which um i i take some strength from the idea of being so petty at the age of 81 you know he's alive <laughs> if he's still that petty he's still alive you know
1: yes <laughs> yeah and you know something that the uh excellent autobiography reveals the autobiography by the way is amazing and they really don't make them like this anymore if they ever did before because it's fully illustrated but in a kind of really wacky kind of just bizarre cracked out graphic design way with all of this uh scribbly bits and all of the sort of justification changes and there's just loads going on but it does mention in there that um that Reed and Kale in the 60s got hepatitis off of the same needle and there's something about being you know a kind of fated blood brothers almost wow. against yeah. their will that really kind of sticks with me and especially when you think you know that the, that his liver um, is sort of what got Lou Reed in the end, and he'd had a uh, he had a liver transplant, I think, didn't he? Or he he had liver surgery, yeah, it must have been a transplant, I think. And um, and I, I think liver failure was ultimately how he died. And there's something quite quite deep about the idea that they they share that kind of visceral, literally visceral kind of connection. Um, and yeah, I, I think they just they just never. It's not. It's. I think that actually the the autobiography does help to explain some of this. I mean, obviously, it's deeply biased because it's one a one sided account. But it's not like they could have made up. It, it was never going to happen like that. You know, fans often wish that their favorite bands would just simply talk it out and get back together again, or that Morrissey and Mar would just shake hands and go back on tour or something. And it's like no, no, because these people fundamentally cannot operate together and it's not just that they've that there's a particular issue that they've argued about or fallen out over it's like they just have these totally opposite yet attractive personalities that are co- going to cause them problems forever and his descriptions in the book of what lee Reader's actually like you just think I, I can't believe that anyone tolerated him for more than you know a few weeks or months at a time he sounds at, like genuinely intolerable like impossible and that his entire mo in life was to make other people's lives impossible and just to you know wind people up annoy people and be a contrarian really consistently um and that also he had uh, a a manager wife um which can sometimes go well for people, but for reed maybe didn't go so well who supposedly drove a wedge between them obviously my feminist reading is that there might be um, some <laughs> simplification going on there yeah. it's very easy to blame your manager wife or your wife or whatever um but they're just just fundamentally incompatible people it's complete the, the crazy thing is that they ever spent long enough in a room together to get the songs down and play them live for three years or whatever it was
0: yeah if anything uh, the amazing thing is is how generous they remain to each other despite um Obviously, completely rubbing each other up the wrong way on every level. The the fact that the Velvet Underground did get back together for for gigs and for Glastonbury and so on, and there's John Cale playing uh, playing on songs that he you know was was kicked out of the band when the the band originally recorded, and then there's yeah. Drella as well, uh, which Cale. Sort of complains about the the um, the uh, the tribute album to, to Andy Warhol that uh, he and Lou Reed produced together in the early nineties, but it's there and uh, mm-hmm. in a way that you can't imagine a Morrissey and Mar um, c- sort of getting back together. So, despite the fact it was obviously deeply unpleasant for them to have any involvement with each other whatsoever, they nonetheless did pop back for these these kind of gestures, I guess.
1: Mm-hmm. And it can't just be Reed either, because I believe that when Kale uh, made the album with Brian Eno in 89 90 um that they fell out too you know these mm-hmm. these yeah. things happen when you have artists who have a very clear idea about what they want to make i mean that's that is how artists often are because you have to be quite quite single minded in order to produce anything so i'm i'm not so su- i'm not surprised about that but yeah i think he's um i think kale has not necessarily lots of enemies but uh, certainly a a long kind of score sheet of enmities
0: who um else of that kind of older generation artists whose whose main kind of work is in the past who who else do you think remains interesting because i mean the the 2000s or, or the the 21st century so far like really worked out how to market a lot of those um legacy acts and suddenly you oh, yeah. had uh the the you know the stones and paul mccartney a good example so of, of people where like they, they, there's no there's no creativity left in those people at all and yet this huge kind of industry keeps rolling on uh, 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 despite that at the same time there is a, a handful of them that continue to do interesting stuff but you know, Bert Beckerek died a few days ago. This is this is really the sort of the last sort of phase of people from that people who were there at the start of pop music. Put it that way.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yes, we are running low. We, I mean, people who have died even in the last you know year or few years. Tom Verlaine, not that he was necessarily doing lots of new things. scott walker perhaps i mean that that mm-hmm. would be a more recent example but in terms of people who are still with us i i think well there would be people who are increasingly more sort of underground figures perhaps um you could argue that yoko Ono is still doing some quite interesting art now and then um yeah but but for in terms of people who had serious cultural impact at the time and are still doing interesting things yes it perhaps kale really is kind of the last man standing i am um, i listened to uh, your conversation recently about dylan and I, I i do kind of buy it but i unfortunately i went to see dylan um for the first and only time about 2004 Mm-hmm. And it was very bad. <laughs> I didn't like it at all. And I don't think yeah. I ever really caught up with it again. Um, maybe no. I don't know about doing exciting new things. Everyone says Springsteen is still really great. I mean, he's a bit he's the generation after, but you know, as a live force, people are still into that. Um, a lot of the kind of punky people are not really around anymore david byrne i guess but he's not he's not at that advanced age we're talking about the generation after now aren't we so yeah, in yeah. terms of the 60s not sure marshall allen is still going but i'm not sure some have particularly changed in <laughs> like recent years you know? <laughs> <Not> sure. <laughs> maybe yeah perhaps i think we'd be getting into more wire magazine territory to come up with with other people um i think uh well, they've got the necks on the cover this month so that might be a that and they had Meredith monk last month so yeah there are there are some senior figures around still doing interesting things but ones that actually had a kind of pop culture relevance in the first place I, I don't know do you, do you think there are others
0: no well I mean I'll stand up for Dylan and do think there's an interesting co- comparison and contrast between kale and and Dylan right now um mm. in that I mean the you know D- Dylan's Voice for those, for the people who are, um, are are converts to the late versions of Bob Dylan's voice, you you'll hear all kinds of arguments about the its strange subtlety as an instrument, but it, it's a it's a, ra- a ravaged weak strange thing whereas the the uncanniness actually of, of seeing kale live is that he sort of shuffles on as you as you put it he he was wearing the cassock that you, that you referred to in the article I yeah
1: we i think um, it was um i think it was fully uh it it was either top to toe Rick Owens, or we think it may was may have been Rick Owens and Comme de Garçon. It was extremely high fashion for sure. Yeah,
0: yeah, with the uh, with the high tops as well. But he sort of sh-
1: yeah, Rick Owens <laughs> high tops, yeah.
0: Sh- shuffles shuffles on, and uh, then you know this this extraordinary uh, booming voice comes out, uh, which is yeah. what happens. and with, and some really
1: Dylan. high notes too. There yeah. were some there were yeah. some high notes that yeah, he were. just nailed. Yeah. So that's um, really hard when you're 81. Like it. It is difficult to keep singing the same range as you yeah. had when you were younger. It just that's just what happens. So very impressive. And,
0: and whereas Dylan has musically vanished into the the, the increasingly distant past, I mean, the, a lot of reviewers were wrong-footed by what the philosophy of modern song, what modern meant in that uh, book title in Dylan's recent book, as he as he's really. Once again, going back into the early 20th century, uh, quite a lot of the time, um, stylistically, whereas Kale is is looking for the the absolutely most advanced and current sounds. So I think there's sort of strange um, parallels between them, or, or rather inverted opposites. And um, yeah, but but that that's that's as that's as far as it goes.
1: Um, yeah, no, it's, it's funny that they are the same age. It, it, they you know, obviously my idea of the 60s is uh, entirely secondhand, but I I have a very strong sense of both of them as artists. I've thought about them a lot, you know, I've listened to them a lot, I've, I've absorbed the secondary media around them, and um, it can be quite hard to put them together as things that were happening at the same time, because the lineages that they're speaking to are just so separate, and like you say Dylan is looking backwards in a way that well, well but he always was and did mm-hmm. and and there was always a bit of a a conjuring of the past going on with Dylan wasn't there and a kind of fitting himself into a slightly mystical and mythological version of certain pasts and so forth but for Kale, it was always about the present the present avant-garde what's changing what's next he is he is a a much more well he's the other type of modern artist um and it's so strange to see them both yeah the same age and still pushing their art into well i think the phrase that you used on the dylan uh episode was was that dylan is an an active artist and that's absolutely what Mm. kale is as well yes but the results are just completely different they started from such a different place in the in the first place and of course because kale's influences you know he he came to rock and roll by accident anyway he was a classical and an avant-garde musician who wasn't really sure what to do with that and I suppose because of the time and place that he found himself mid-60s New York the options was infinite really so he invents drone one week and then he writes some rock and roll art songs the next week it's all kind of all possible but perhaps a bit accidental at the time, but just all in pursuit of something new and different. Whereas it it seems to me, and I'm absolutely not a Dylanologist, that there's a, a kind of deep time quest for Dylan, yeah. searching for some kind of essence somewhere.
0: And you could point to songs and covers and styles in Kale's back catalogue that superficially seem like they're doing the same thing. There is a kind of roots revival thing going on in vintage violence which could be put next to um the basement dylan's basement tapes that it's just a few years after you could point to uh i mean he, he played the ballad of uh, cable hogue uh at the, the gig we saw um streets of larido another uh, a song that he tried to get nico to cover and she referred contemptuously to cowboy music but what i'd say about kale is that whereas dylan seems to kind of inhabit that whole american past for kale there's a sort of chilliness of the simulacrum when he does roots music i i really see it like a Andy Warhol screen prints of it I, I, I no I'm never convinced when people say oh well kale from the Welsh countryside he identified with uh, you know American country music and that's why he covered it it's not I don't see it that way at all I, I think that it's a kind of a, a, a masterful screen print or or, or copy uh, and that that is that is its artificiality is sort of part of the meaning something that you you'd never really say about Dylan who who does seem to like believe the folk world that he uh, that he sings through,
1: to some extent. But then I don't know. I mean, I think that kind of, I think there's something in in Dylan which is also a a, a weird layering of authenticity and inauthenticity, and mm-hmm. you know, copying and um, a certain type of make believe and a certain type of invention of a of a of, of a character and a lifestyle and a a time and you know he, a lot of that was a a vision that he had of a, a type of American folk past perhaps or American outlaw past all, all of these kinds of ideas that aren't they're not exactly authentic either because the whole you know the, the kind of the basis of the the kind of Greenwich village folk scene was of course to revive folk you know was to bring it back but in bringing it back they ended up changing it and adding their own meanings and 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 biases and perspectives and all of these things um so in a weird way you know perhaps bob dylan isn't so far removed from the the screen prints and the factories or basically the 60s moment of a kind of cultural production which is exploring the past as a kind of image that you can duplicate and yeah. layer and you know the authenticity becomes quite confused I mean something that I always say about Andy Warhol which I, I say also about the Sex Pistols this is a little bit that I a pub bit that I say but the thing with Warhol is that when you first come across Warhol probably as a teenager you love it think it's great Andy Warhol's cool then you have a moment where you think uh no it's it's a bit it's a bit basic I'm actually into you know yoko Ono now or whatever Uh, it's all a bit simple and andy warhol's just chase celebrity and it's all meaningless and superficial but then you go around again and then you uh, you get to the galaxy brain level where actually you really understand that there's just so much going on in Warhol I think he just truly is the quintessential 20th century fine artist, he's so prescient the way that what he's doing on canvas is saying so much about what's about to happen with celebrity culture, with, with ubiquitous mass media all of these things it just, it just it speaks to its time and obviously everybody says that about like Dylan in the 60s too but they're happening at the same time there is something, there is something, there is something shared between and them in terms of, terms of I guess play, I guess play, playing playing with, playing with the power of the, power the of image. It and and I mean somewhere.
0: Yeah no absolutely right I I, I think that's uh I, I think that's really great. Uh well Charl Ravens when I asked you if you'd come on to speak about uh John Cale you said why don't you get someone from Mojo magazine and I have succeeded in getting you to do an hour on the olden times maybe if we get to speak again you, you'll um agree to come on to talk about something contemporary uh but uh, this has been really insightful and um i hope that uh, we get people to listen to uh, john cale's current stuff because he is uh, indeed the active artist um yes, yes. so yeah <laughs> thanks once again for joining us on the popular show
1: oh thank you so much james it's been a pleasure